Okay, let's remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And it's going to be 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going through the foundations. I was looking for a passage to preach on apologetics. And this is a, there's a verse that I had preached on before, not by way of apologetics, but just in terms of the incredible hope that we have. Verse 15. But uh, I thought this is a perfect passage for teaching uh, exactly the, the foundation principles that we're standing for as a church. First Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Amen. Father God, we look to you, we look to your word, and uh, we do so with reverence. And I pray that you would enable me to faithfully preach your word and for us to receive it, to be encouraged and strengthened through it. And Father, may you receive all of the glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so far in this foundation series, we've been looking at a victorious hope, a victorious grace. We've been looking at the victorious plans that the Lord has for this universe. And today I want to look at a victorious apologetics. I call it presuppositional apologetics. And I think your viewpoint on apologetics makes a huge difference on the degree of confidence that you have in the scriptures, as well as the aggressiveness by which you apply those scriptures. But I thought I'd begin by defining the term. Uh, we're used to thinking of an apology as expressing regrets, right? Regrets for something that we've done wrong. And that is one of the meanings. It's the second meaning in Webster's Unabridged Dictionary. But the primary meaning, the first meaning, is what I've given for you in your outlines there. And let me read that. Apology. From the Greek word apologia, something said or written in defense, an argument to show that some idea, religion, etc., is right. An apologist, one who speaks or writes in defense of the doctrine, faith, action, etc. Apologetics, that branch of theology having to do with the defense and proof of Christianity. So that's the meaning of the term that we're going to be using today. Apologetics is not where you're sorry and you're kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of backtracking on Christianity at all. No, it's very, very aggressive. It's the word uh, in the Greek that is defined in verse 15 as give a defense. That's the Greek word apologia. Okay, so it's right in the text there, give uh, defense. And some of you might think apologetics is just an egghead kind of uh, an issue that only professionals, you know, would be interested in. And I want to demonstrate that that is absolutely not the case. All Christians are apologists, whether they like it or not. We're either good ones or we're bad ones. But unless we give up the faith completely, we are defending the faith in some way. Now, sometimes we defend it in a way that's not so good. We maybe try to defend it in a, a way, uh, defending ourselves so that we're not going to look stupid in the eyes of the world. Uh, that is a wrong motivation. We might be defending our Christianity by appealing just to our opinion. That's not a good method. Uh, we might be defending Christianity with the sole goal of making our opponents look like idiots. That's not a good goal. 
But whether we've got the right motive, goal, or standard, doesn't matter. We are defending something as Christians. And there are going to be people who challenge what you do, what you say, what you think, and how you respond to that challenge is your apologetic. For example, if people come up to you and say, what in the world are you homeschooling for? You know, they act like you're idiots for homeschooling. If you're embarrassed by the real reasons for homeschooling, uh, you might just bring up issues that the unbeliever is interested in and engage in a, you know, an, a half-hearted apologetic. You know, well, it's just the bad socialization, you know, the drugs that are in the schools or Abraham Lincoln homeschooled or different things like that. Now, we're going to be seeing those are good reasons that you can include, but it has to be done in the right way. And uh, uh, the, the, the way that we do apologetics is uh, something that could either be faithful to Scripture or is unfaithful. And I think if we fail to challenge the root of where people are coming from when they talk about anything that you're doing, if we fail to challenge the root, we're not going to have an effective apologetic. So right off the bat, I want to take this idea of apologetics out of the realm of philosophy and heady stuff that only the professionals are interested in. And I want to, I want to show how the defense of the faith that verse 15 talks about is something that every man, woman, and child engages in every day of your life. You're constantly engaging in it, sometimes well, sometimes poorly, but you are engaging in it. Now, first of all, let me try to demonstrate who it is that is being spoken to here. Is it just the professional theologian? Is it just the professional philosopher? And I think the answer is obviously no. If you look at verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you be of one mind. And if you trace that preposition, if you trace that uh, pronoun, thank you. It wasn't coming. <laughs> if you trace the you through the passage, you will discover rather quickly it's the same you that is being spoken of in verse 13, verse 15. It's the same you that is being persecuted in this chapter. It's the same you that are husbands in verse 7, that are wives in verses 1 through 6, and that are masters and slaves in the previous chapter. In other words, every Christian, according to him, is responsible to give an answer of the hope that lies within them. Now, what does that mean, the hope that lies within you? I believe, in the simplest terms, it's the thing that drives you in any of your actions. What are your goals? What are the things that, that, that drive you on? That, I believe, is um, where your apologetic is. Now, there are different styles of apologetic that you'll find in Scripture. For example, Acts 17 shows Paul clashing with the intellectual philosophers in Athens. And most of us, you know, are not going to be in that kind of a setting where were clashing with philosophers, but the same book shows that Peter gave a very uneducated apologetic, and that is in Acts 4, 4, verse 13. Now, when the members of the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. They realized that they had been with Jesus. They weren't impressed with their academic credentials. They said, man, these are untrained people, but they were blown away with the confidence and the boldness that Peter and John had. Did you know that there have been Jehovah's Witnesses who have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord not through the argument so much of the people as by the lifestyle that was shown by those people? For example, I read one testimony. Jehovah's Witness went with his partner to, to a Christian home, 
and they were walking all over this Christian in terms of their arguments. I mean, they'd really dominated the conversation. But this Jehovah's Witness said he could not get over the confidence, the assurance, and the joy that this Christian had. He knew the promises of Scripture. He knew God and his life. And he says, that's what won me to Christ. We were winning the arguments in other ways, but that was a part of this Christian's apologetic. Uh, he wasn't anybody that was really savvy, but he knew the Lord, and he knew the Scriptures, and he trusted those Scriptures. Now, let me just l stick to the book of First Peter. Peter shows average Christians engaging in apologetics, doing it with the whole of their lives. And a lot of people like to quote verse 15, and they just end with verse 15, you know, when it comes to apologetics. But verse 15 flows into verse 16. Let's read the two verses together. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Uh, Peter's point here is that there is far more to good apologetics than a good argument. Okay? He says your good conduct can override their arguments and make them ashamed. In fact, if we view apologetics as just a sort of uh, intellectual chess game where you're trying to you know, outplay the other person, um, what's going to happen is you're just going to leave the apologetics to the experts. Unless you're an expert. You know, you're just going to say, I, I'm just not adequate to this. And Peter says, no, I want every Christian involved in apologetics. I want every Christian to be doing that, even the most humble of them. And I think if we keep in mind that this passage that we read, verses 13 through 17, is part of his long stream of discussion on how we live holy lives, I think it will help us. For example, take a look at chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, Peter is saying that as much as their conduct is reviled by these people, their conduct is going to be a good apologetic before God that will point to God. And so verses 12 through 17 of that same chapter show how you relate to your citizenship is going to be either a good or a bad apologetic. The last part of that chapter shows how a slave's work ethic uh, is played out, is either a good or a bad apologetic. First Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, shows how a wife's behavior with her unbelieving husband is either a good or a bad apologetic. In fact, it's interesting, the, the verses uh, uh, 1 through 6 imply that even though this woman has shared the truth with her husband, her husband has rejected it, and she is seeking to win him without a word. Now, that ought to be encouraging to those of you who aren't really good with words, right? That there can be an apologetic, an attempt to win the husband through your lifestyle. Now, he has, she has shared the truth, because otherwise there wouldn't be any word for him to be rejecting, but she does not nag, okay? She doesn't uh, continue on, and so... There was a situation in verse 1. In fact, I'll just go ahead and read it. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So apologetics can involve our conduct without even being a battle of words. Verse 7 says the same about a believing husband. 
The rest of the chapter shows our relations to each other. Our relations to unbeliever can either be a powerful turn off or a powerful turn on. Okay, just, just your actions. Francis Schaeffer said the best apologetic for the world is seeing that Christians love one another. By this shall all men know, my disciples, if you have love one for another. That's an apologetic. And so don't be intimidated by apologetics. Uh, why don't you put in your, in your outline 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. And let me read that for you. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things that are wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Now he's saying, here are the Christians. Most of them are fairly foolish. They're fairly weak. And yet they're putting to shame these scholars. What's that meaning? That means they're winning the apologetic, right? And presuppositional apologetics is the only apologetics in which you can find even young children who have not been very well trained who can totally baffle uh, uh, people who are much more intellectually savvy than they are. Um, in, in the most recent uh, newsletter by, um, who's the guy, Answers in Genesis, uh, Ken Ham, uh, he gives a story of a, a girl, just, she gave a one-liner, <laughs> a one-line response that was this uh, two-fold presuppositional apologetic, and it just, it just put the whole school in an uproar, and they were realizing they need to reevaluate what they were doing. And so you don't have to be intellectually savvy. Anyway, he goes on. He has chosen the base things of the world, the things which are despised God has chosen, the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Apologetics is not about pride, glorying, and having put some atheist in its place, because if it's done right, it's going to be drawing attention to God, the power of God's word, the sufficiency of his scripture. It's not going to be drawing attention to how great we are. It's an apologetic that anyone should be able to use. And so... My first point, don't be intimidated. Even the smallest of children can be taught to use this apologetics. In fact, sometimes they can use it more effectively than we can. Uh, I know when my children were three and four-year-olds, uh, I was, there have been times where I was embarrassed. You know, they're just talking about Christianity as if everybody believes in Christianity. This is the greatest thing in the world, and they're talking in a ways that would really be insulting to people and, and uh, saying... Uh, right out there in the grocery store and mommy isn't it true that people are going to go to hell <laughs> you know if they don't believe in jesus and telling people you know that's not right god's going to send you to hell if you don't repent and i think ooh, man just makes you kind of uh, okay kids let's talk about this a little bit but you know i began to realize that some of the shame that was in me sometimes you know they weren't wording things exactly right but some of the shame that was in me was really from my flesh, was from the pit of hell, and we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was my kids that got me to be much more bold in terms of talking about the things of the Lord as being the most natural part of, uh, of my life. Point number two, there are opportunities for apologetics everywhere. Uh, one opportunity is mentioned in verse 14, threats and persecution. Another opportunity is the person's asking him, how come you have this hope? And we're not told you know why they're motivated to ask it we're not told if if they they're, they're asking why in the world you believe that nonsense or if it's a sincere question but it doesn't matter whatever questions come they need to be ready 
so that they can bring people to the truth of Scripture. And if you really think about it, if everything we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, is to be done to the glory of God, that means everything relates to the hope that lies within us, doesn't it? And it's something that can point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the question, for example, why do you homeschool? Could have any number of biblical answers that you might give uh, to that. Uh, for example, if the person is... Uh, concerned that your kids are not being socialized uh, you can do the twofold argument you can say well it's precisely because of the socialization the bad socialization the venereal disease and uh, you know attempted suicides and all the things there i want them to be socialized in biblical values or if they're and that might actually get you into a discussion with them where you're going back and forth on these issues where they want what you are having in terms of socialization or if they think you're not getting a good education, you might say, well, it's precisely because I want them educated in biblical truth rather than the constantly changing political fads that they're being indoctrinated in the schools. Uh, who knows? Your, your responses may be different than mine, but you draw them back to your hope. Your hope is, um, I want my children to make a mark for the Lord. I want my children to glorify God, to take dominion. And you, they see you working hard, you know. They see uh, the sacrifices that you're making, and they're mystified. I wouldn't do that, they think. Why are you doing that? Well, you can show to them the value that you have for your children. And so there could be any number of reasons that um, might draw into an apologetic. It might be something totally different. Perhaps uh, you've done something kind. You've helped the person out of the ditch, or you've done something uh, selfless for an unbeliever. In a book on apologetics, Grover Gunn said, What does it matter if one has honed his apologetic skills to a fine art if he never has an opportunity to use them? Before one can defend the faith, he must first earn a hearing for the faith. I believe the foremost duty of the Christian apologist is to live his daily life in obedience to Jesus and the power of Jesus. That is what, more than anything else, will earn a hearing. It will draw the interest and attention, the amazement and wonder of a watching world and so he's saying when people see grace in your life that you're doing things that no unbeliever can do do that uh it becomes a powerful part of apologetics when for example wives act their part in verses one through six when husbands act their part in verse seven uh when believers respond in the ways that uh verses eight and following talk about totally unexpected you know returning good for evil love for hate then not only is it God's blessing in their lives, but it says unbelievers are going to look at that and say, what is it that drives you? I would think you would be blown away. I would think you'd be depressed. I'd think that you would uh, feel terrible about the situation, yet you, here you are having hope. In fact, Rodney yesterday was talking with me about a, a believer at work that's being um, uh, let go because of downsizing, right? And he's become more and more convinced of some of the Reformed doctrines. And his response to God's sovereignty was something that just blew other people away and has caused them to wonder, how come you're taking this in such an evil, even-keeled way? And it, it was an opportunity to witness. So even his response there was, in a sense, an opportunity for uh, apologetics. If you're not living the supernatural life of the Holy Spirit that's described in this chapter, then it doesn't matter how many arguments you give, the world could care less. They're used to arguments they can't answer. In fact, there's journals full of arguments that never do have an answer. You know, people 
Uh, people have disagreements dime a dozen, but what makes the Christian disagreement so powerful is the lifestyle that accompanies it. I think that's what makes it the difference. J.I. Packer describes the fruit of the Spirit this way. Each is a habit of reaction that is most strikingly seen in situations where, humanly speaking, a different reaction would have been expected. So it's those situations where uh, you hit your thumb with a hammer or um, you're calm, cool, and collected when somebody cuts you off in the traffic uh, that gives an opportunity for an apologetic, how you respond. You know, when you're woken up in the middle of the night with a phone ringing when it's not supposed to be, you can have an apologetic to your wife. You know, does it cause your wife to have admiration at the degree of grace that God has brought into your life? Or is it just another example of the flesh uh, dominating? You know, when your child asks you for a decision, your decision is going to point either to your autonomy or to your submission to God's authority. Every child is involved in some kind of defense, you know, and they say, Daddy, why can't I do this? Everybody's doing this. I want to do this. She's engaging or he's engaging in an apologetic. She is defending what her desires are, not based on God's ethics, but based on humanistic thinking, statistical ethics. That it's okay because everybody's doing it, and anybody that's looking on is going to immediately recognize she's just reasoning the same way you know, other unbelievers are reasoning. It's independent thought. It's autonomous uh, thought that is being, uh, being held out there. It's uh, showing constantly what drives you. You're going to be showing that to your wife, to your husband, to your children, to your neighbors, to your associates. How you live is going to demonstrate the hope that is in you. And uh, you can't say, I'm just going to leave apologetics out of the office. When we get to point four, I'm going to be mentioning that it's appropriate to tell employees, you know, not to justify their arrogance and misuse company time, you know, through the, some of the kinds of witnessing that people do. Uh, but that's a bad apologetic in and its own right, okay? But I'm not saying we should... Uh, not be living out our Christian life. Everything you do is a witness. And it should show forth your trust in the Lord that what you do and even your conversation should have the Scriptures a part of it. But uh, what, we're talking, what we're talking about here is uh, not being pushy, but it's, it's handling opportunities uh, properly. Okay, let's go on to point three. We must avoid unbiblical methods of apologetics. Now, in most books that you read, there's only three apologetic systems that are being uh, uh, taught. There's evidentialism, fideism, and uh, uh, presuppositionalism. But if you read much in apologetics, you'll recognize there's a whole bunch of schools of thought out there, and you'll find them in common life uh, very frequently. <coughs> and so I want to look at uh, a few of these uh, apologetic forms, uh, just six of them. There's actually more than that. First one is called authoritarianism. In a nutshell, this is convincing people you need to believe or else. Okay? Uh, much of the world was conquered by Islam using exactly this apologetic, believe or else, right? And I think most people, eh, you know, it's when they, when they look at the, uh, you know, the options that are out there, it's a whole lot easier to believe than to face the sword, to face persecution, ostracism, loss of privileges, and things like that. And so this is the authoritarian uh, method. This was the method that was used by the Roman Empire during the time that 
1 Peter was being written, in fact, um, I should have put in your outlines, verse 14 is an example of this authoritarian method. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, we're going to be seeing in a moment that this apologetic should be useless against Christians. It should be, because Christians should having a easy thing. It's not always, because we don't always think Christianly. But I think that this apologetic is even ineffective with unbelievers. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think it's ineffective, is because when the threat is lifted, what usually happens? People abandon the religion, or even if they continue to hold to the religion, it's rather nominal, you know, they really don't hold onto that religion in a, in a, in a gripping way. I think our student from the, a Muslim country was a case in point. Uh, in his country, he wore a prayer turban. He prayed toward Mecca right out in the middle of the street with everybody else, you know, the prescribed number of times. He did all of the different rituals because in his country, he knew what the or else was, and it just wasn't worth it to buck the system. When he came to America, yeah, he still called himself a Muslim, but he ditched the prayer turban. He didn't pray. I mean, he, he ditched all of those things. It wasn't something that really gripped his life. And so that's what I'm saying. This authoritarian method is not an effective uh, method even with unbelievers and you might say okay i understand that you know we don't need to talk about that too long because christians don't engage in the authoritarian apologetics and i would say that's wrong christians do it all the time um, when uh, you are raising children there are many good reformed christian homes that use this unbiblical method in getting their children to embrace christianity or embrace different facets. Now, I'm not saying that we cannot have discipline in the realm of religion. The scripture talks about that. But if that's the only thing that you are using with your children, you're not shepherding their hearts. You're not reaching their hearts. It's not going to be an effective apologetic because the moment they leave home, if all they've had is authoritarianism to get them to do things, when the opportunity comes, they're going to leave it. And if we're not shepherding the heart, it's not going to be uh, effective. It's not an effective apologetic for convincing your unbelieving wives. Verse 7. You know, rather than forcing your way, he says, woo the wife, love the wife. It's not an effective apologetic for wives to use with their husbands, according to verses 1 through 6. And you might think, now wait a shake, authoritarian with the wife, how does that work? Well, wives can be a very authoritarian as well. They usually don't use physical force. What frequently happens is they will have domineering words and attitudes and manipulation and things like that but peter says hey uh, that will never win the the husband's heart verse one says you don't need the intimidation uh, machine of nagging he says that's not the, the the effective apologetic it's not an effective apologetic tool in winning the hearts of children god calls them, us to shepherd their hearts chapter five peter says it's not an effective apologetic of pastors look at chapter five verse two Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. He's saying, I don't want these shepherds shepherd, shepherding out of a sense of compulsion because presbytery is forcing them. But then go on and look in verse 3. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. He says, I don't want you to use compulsion or lording it over those who are sheep. That is not an effective um, apologetic method. And yet, unfortunately, this is the easiest <laughs> the uh, default role that people tend to go into when they can't come up with any good arguments they go into the intimidation sometimes even yelling right 
bullying with their arguments. That should have absolutely no place in presuppositional apologetics. So let's cast out the authoritarian method, and let's take a look at the pragmatic method. Uh, this one doesn't say believe or else. Pragmatism says, try it. You'll like it. Christianity works. Now, I believe Christianity works as well, but that's not the point. Um, the issue is how do you define what works? And how in the world could that be said to be a basis for it being right? And l let me just illustrate. You could have a woman that is in rebellion and is uh, wanting to serve her own selfish um, uh, desires. And I can just hear her saying, nah, that submission thing in 1 Peter 3 doesn't work for me. And it doesn't matter how much you protest the contrary and say, look, think of the joy. You could point to households, the joy, the peace, the stability, the effectiveness, and the sense of satisfaction. I mean, you could point to all of those types of things. She's still going to say it doesn't work because she's defining what works as what makes me comfortable in my sin and in my rebellion, right? So pragmatistic arguments will not uh, work. Do you think that these Christians could realistically tell their pagans who are throwing them to the lions, try it, you'll like it? <laughs> I don't think so, not very well. Because they could point to the fact, yes, God has given to us a joy inexpressible and full of glory, so that even in the midst of being thrown to the lions, God gives us this comfort. But you know, the pagans are going to be thinking, confiscation of goods, I don't like being eaten by lions. And the pragmatic argument is simply not going to work in this chapter. Now, during times of great prosperity, yes, maybe it will work. I think this is the argument of the name it and claim it gospel. Now, I'm not saying that you should tell your children or your neighbors that Christianity doesn't work. <laughs> it does work. In fact, I tell unbelievers, I think it's the only system that does work. But you have to define your terms. For example, I think that biblical free market economics is the only economics that works long term but when i'm getting into a debate with a socialist who's emotionally arguing you know that there's these poor widows out there that can't afford uh, medical insurance and they need government assistance or when i'm arguing with um oh the the uh you know the labor union guy who's just really upset and screaming that the ceo is earning two million dollars and i'm only getting forty five thousand dollars a year that's not fair uh, pragmatics is not going to get me very far. What I've got to do is appeal to the truth of the Scriptures and point out if you reject the standard of truth that the Scriptures give, you have got no rational basis on which to say that that CEO does not deserve more than you do. It's your opinion versus who, his opinion. How do you tell that your opinion is better than his? Okay, but pragmatism by itself, unless it's defined, is not going to help. And I'm afraid many times we fall into the pragmatic uh, mode of arguing apologetics with our children or with other people. We've got, now, pragmatism is fine so long as you've already defined it by the Scripture, and you say the Scripture always works. That's a part of the apologetic. But in and of itself, it's not a basis for truth. Okay, a third faulty and inadequate approach is mysticism, or belief because we just know it by intuition. And it's not just the charismatics that are at fault here. I think this pietism is rife everywhere. Uh, you just find it everywhere. Where authoritarianism says, believe or else, and pragmatism says, try it, you'll like it, uh, what mysticism says is, the reason I know Christianity is true is because I have Jesus in my heart. Deep down, I know that this is true. When I was a kid, they made us sing uh, a hymn. Maybe some of you uh, know it. Uh, 
You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And we'd have to say, no, that's not the reason you know that he lives. You know he lives because the scripture says, and he's a God who cannot lie, that Jesus has arisen and that he lives in our heart. Okay? So we've got to be very careful here. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not opposed to mystical experiences. I have them all the time. I love mystical experiences, okay? Um, uh, the, the, the presence of God in my life is, is a very comforting thing to me. Uh, verse 15 starts with a mystical, I think, intuitive act. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Okay, it's something subjective. I think we need to have the reality of the truth of Scripture lived out in our lives. So I'm not saying that I'm opposed to subjective experiences. But here's the problem. Mysticism goes way beyond that. Mysticism says that it bases its proof upon my personal experience. What is that saying, in effect? That the truth of Christianity is based upon the experience of a fallible man rather than upon the statements of the infallible Word of God. Can you see the problem there? I'm mistaken and I'm very fallible, uh, my experience is fa faulty, and it's not going to carry me through when times get tough, and it's not going to be very convincing to other people because every religion in the world has experiences. How do I know that my experience is not a demonic experience instead of a God-given experience? The Bible says even Christians can have demonic experiences. Did you know that every fruit of the Holy Spirit is counterfeited by Satan? Satan can give false peace. He can give false joy. He can give feelings of love. He can give anything, you know. Uh, there, there's counterfeits out there that Satan does. And so experiences are subjective. They're unprovable. They're changing. You know, when you're, you're having the flu, you know, sometimes you feel down. And some people feel, man, I'm so unspiritual today. No, you're just sick with the flu, you know. You're throwing up. You're not supposed to feel good, you know, when you're, when you're throwing up. And so when you base it on your experience and how you feel, you are on such slippery ground. Now, I want you to notice that Peter does not say that it's the mystical experience that is the basis for the defense. I want to read those, uh, that verse again, verse 15. I want you to watch for two key words, hope and reason. The defense of the faith that he is talking about is, has reason and hope in the context of faith. Here's verse 15 again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Reason involves the mind. Hope involves the mind. Over and over again in the Scripture, hope is grounded in the Bible. The Bible says, I have hoped in your ordinances. I have hoped in your word. In his word do I hope. The hope of the promise made by God to our fathers through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Okay, so it's something that's rational. It's something you read and you understand that gives you hope. In Ephesians 2, it says, those who are without the word of God are without hope. Okay, so even though people can have mystical experiences, not a problem, you don't base your Christianity upon those experiences. You must base it upon the word of God. Make sense? Okay, let's move on to the next bad apologetic. Related method of defending the faith is called fideism, where authoritarianism says, believe it or else. Pragmatism says, try it, you'll like it. Mysticism says, God's so real to me, you've got to believe it. I've experienced it. Fideism says, you've got to make a blind leap of faith. 
Even though there's no evidence, you've got to make a blind leap of faith and trust that God is there. Fideism gives no effort to argue. It simply presents an assertion and tells people to believe it. Now, in some circles, it's not even believing the Scripture. Like in Roman Catholic circles, they talk about implicit faith. In other words, you have to trust the church's interpretation. Even if it doesn't make sense, you've got to trust them in order to have uh, salvation. Barthianism is another form of fideism. Karl Barth, father of neo-orthodoxy, and I like to say that neo-orthodoxy is neither new nor is it orthodox. Uh, it's just a repackaged liberalism. But uh, neo-orthodoxy thinks that apologetics is an illegitimate pursuit. It's not possible to defend the faith. Well, when you understand what their faith is, you can realize why it's not possible. But let me read you a quote. Neo-orthodoxy teaches that God is transcendent or wholly other in the sense that he cannot communicate to us in a manner we can comprehend with our minds. Thus, the Bible is not the word of God. The Bible contains the word of God in that we read the Bible. God can communicate to us through a spiritual encounter deep within our being, a spiritual encounter which does not directly involve the mind. Thus, to use the language of neo-orthodoxy, God is wholly revealed to us in terms of an irrational encounter but he simultaneously remains totally hidden from us in terms of our mental comprehension. That is not the biblical faith. Uh, Peter says not only that we have a hope, but that there is a reason for the hope, and secondly, that this, this rational hope can be defended. It can be defended. It needs to be defended. But where fideism offers hope without reason... The next one, evidentialism, offers reasons without presupposing the hope of Scripture. Okay, it offers reasons without presupposing our hope. In fact, they strenuously object to inserting the hope of Scripture into the equation. Instead, they want us to reason from a neutral standpoint. Uh, let's just be objective, they say. Uh, let's uh, look at the facts that are out there. We'll set aside there being any God or being any Bible or anything like that. Let's just look at the facts, the so-called facts of history. And if we neutrally look at these facts, we're going to be forced to come to the conclusion that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then we can trust him because he said that he would rise from the dead. And we can also believe that he is God because he not only said he was God, but his rising from the dead demonstrates that he is God. And if Jesus can be trusted, then when he says that the whole Bible is something that is true, then we need to listen to the whole message of the Bible. And because the whole message of the Bible talks about hell and heaven, to be safe, you better believe the Bible. They give a probability argument. It's probably true. And so they're trying to reason from out here, the facts of the world, into having a hope but without injecting the hope into the equation at the, at the beginning. Now, if you want a nice, concise critique, there's many great critiques out there, but a nice, concise critique of evidentialism, uh, Bob Fugate's written a tract that's on the back table out there. It's called Taking Every Thought Captive. And there are many problems, but let me just list quickly some of the problems here. The main problem is starting with creation and arguing to the creator is and you there's many different ways of doing that one of the arguments is hey if you find a watch you know that there's a watchmaker right but here's the problem the most that you can argue for if you're arguing from the finite is a finite god you can never come to the god of the bible okay so that's the most that you can argue for uh, you cannot get logically infinite from finite 
A second problem is that the mind then becomes a higher authority than the Bible does. The mind becomes the judge of the scriptures. A third problem that Bob brings up is that this method assumes that unbelievers have not become believers simply because they lack sufficient evidence, whereas the scripture says, hey, there's abundant evidence out there. They're constantly suppressing the evidence, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It's a willful unbelief. It's not a belief because, uh, unbelief because of lack of evidence. Fourth problem that Bob brings up is that it wrongly assumes that it's possible to be neutral about any fact and that it's possible for an unbeliever to be neutral or for a believer to be neutral. There's no such thing as neutrality. You're either for Christ or against him. Here is, in, in my words, in a nutshell, where the problem is. The problem I see with evidentialism is that it uses unbelief to defend belief. It uses the principles that unbelievers can hold to and absolutely agree with, the principles of unbelief, to try to argue for the principles of belief that believers hold to. It's as if the apologist is saying this, and here I'm quoting another author, uh, who's putting words into the apologist's mouth, okay? The apologist is talking to an unbeliever, and he says, here's the apologist speaking, I want to reason as you reason so that you will accept my reasoning. Okay, you can already see we're off to a bad start. I don't want to argue in a circle and beg the question by assuming what I am trying to prove. Therefore, I will set aside for the moment my belief in God, my belief in Christ, my belief in the Bible as a divinely inspired book. I am going to set aside my faith in everything but my faith in my own ability to reason. And then I will use that ability to prove my faith in God, Christ, and the Bible. And it really proves the opposite. What it does is it proves that we are being independent in our thinking. It gives the unbeliever the illusion that he is objective, the illusion that he can be neutral to the facts that are around him. Proving that Jesus rose from the dead does not mean that he is God, does not mean that he is trustworthy, to be trustworthy one time, to untrustworthy another time, in fact, there are millions of people around the world in various religions who do believe that Jesus rose from the dead but utterly reject the Bible as the Word of God. I know of a Jewish professor. He teaches out in California, uh, Southern California University, <clears throat> and uh, he believes that, that the evidence is pretty clear. Jesus must have been raised from the dead, uh, but he says that doesn't mean that I need to believe that he is God. There's a lot of other strange things that have happened in this universe, okay? So evidentialism by itself, I think, is starting on a wrong uh, foundation. Let's go on to the biblical method of presuppositionalism. It starts with a pre-commitment to God. Notice in verse 15, he starts with a pre-commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ before the argument even begins. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. Uh, the Christian needs to start with a commitment uh, to God. And since he's defending a hope, it shows he already has a commitment to that hope. Peter does not allow us to use the world's reason, which has no hope and without, without God, to try to defend the hope and to defend the idea that there is a God. It just does not make does not make sense. Peter wants us to admit to believers, unbelievers, right off the bat, I am committed to the word of God, to being dependent upon God in my thinking. And if you reject that, in fact, you will reject that because you are committed to independence. <clears throat> and if you continue to be committed to independence, you will not be able to reason rationally for the certainty of anything. For example, uh, they will not be able to uh, uh, give a defense for any 
ethical system. And having my PhD in ethics, I've had to study all of the systems that are out there, and they're bankrupt. They're, they're frustrated at their inability to prove that things are wrong. Uh, rape, how can anybody show that rape is wrong if there is no God and if the Bible is not uh, true? Animals do it all the time, so they can't appeal to natural law, you know? Um, you can't appeal to culture. Some people say, well, you know, all cultures would be against rape. That is absolutely not true. In fact, the culture I grew up in, in the tribe in Ethiopia, rape was the norm, and they thought people were weird, were sick, when we trained them that they had to have loving relationships with their wives. Rape was the norm. So anyway, but there is just no rational. I could go for quite a long time in demonstrating that, but that's not the point of the sermon here. We can look in other areas. It doesn't have to be ethics. You cannot come up with any universal axioms on which to base your disciplines unless you are omniscient. Only God knows what always is and what always is not. Okay, that's a universal. What always is and what always is not. And men and women cannot function without universals. So they have to come up with their own universals, which means that they have to pretend to be omniscient arbitrarily have to come up with their own universal that was the ancient temptation that satan gave to adam and eve that they could be as gods they could judge what is right and what is wrong they could judge what is truth and what is not truth they were putting their minds over what god's mind said was truth and what was right and he was tempting them to think independently satan was and so your strategy is to give god's universals god's axioms which provide a basis for every discipline every area of thinking and dominion and when those axioms of scriptures, which is our hope, when those are denied by the unbeliever, you demonstrate how if they reject those, there is no way that they can defend anything with certainty. There is no way that they can uh, do that apart from submitting uh, to the Lord. Uh, they're going to have a flimsy hope instead of the sure and steadfast hope that Hebrews 6 verse 19 talks about. And Peter says, this apologetics, if you're using it rightly, can be so effective that if even if people reject your message, they will be ashamed. Their mouths will be stopped. They won't have an argument any. And I submit to it, or the Bible is right, and I still hate it, and I still reject it, but it takes arguments out of their mouth. In fact, uh, that's the purpose of apologetics is to give Christians certainty and to remove all certainty from unbelief. Let me repeat that again. This is the purpose for apologetics. It is to give Christians certainty and to remove all certainty from unbelief. If you have done that, you have engaged in apologetics very, very well. I was really impressed with uh, Ken Ham's uh, newsletter that I mentioned earlier um, this just came in the mail this week and his first essay is a defense of presuppositional apologetics it's titled don't answer do answer two verses proverbs 26 verses 4 through 5 sum up aig's apologetics ministry giving a defense of the christian faith and he goes on to uh, defend presuppositional apologetics now for me this is just oh this is sweet this is so cool because for so many years the creationists have just adopted the evidentialist apologetics now they've done some wonderful things and i bless the lord for them and they're they have blessed inconsistencies 
but I just pray that this will take over the, uh, the creationist movement because he has done an absolutely wonderful, uh, wonderful job, Answers in Genesis. Now, I like the evidentialist guys as well, even though their apologetic is not effective, and it's been seen over the last several years. This guy has got dynamite. He's got real dynamite in the way in which he argues. But let me take the two verses he appealed to. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, do not answer a fool according to his folly lest you be like him if you agree with an unbeliever that it's legitimate to start from a neutral stance and that anything in life can be interpreted apart from god if that's where you start then you're going to have no basis for moving him from independence to dependence why because you've become just like him your mind has become the judge of truth you're thinking independently you just happen to have Christian doctrines, but your presuppositions are the same as the unbelievers. Why should he move to dependence if you as a believer act as if your mind determines truth? So he says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. And so to argue neutrally is giving the unbeliever exactly what he wants, independence. That's what he's been, you know, he's desiring. You've removed your armor, you've removed your sword, you're defenseless against him. Now the next verse goes on to say, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be wise, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So once you've established that the Bible is the starting point, that it answers the questions of life, the, the things that have plagued philosophers, you can turn around and you can show the unbeliever that if he continues in his independence, there is nothing that he can prove with any absolute cer certainty. So it's a twofold method. You present the positive, you destroy any competition. And this apologetics gives such confidence, such certainty, such aggressiveness that you might liken it to the Navy SEAL approach, you know, to uh, defending the faith. It's a victorious apologetic that matches our victorious hope, the victorious grace, and the victorious plans that God has for this earth. But there is one danger that we need to be on guard against, and this brings us to our last point. It's this weapon of apologetics, when it's properly understood and practiced, is so powerful that it can make people who use it become either, you know, arrogant, proud, and not fun to be around. That's the danger, okay? And so Peter goes on to say, we must defend the faith in a godly manner. So, he says, uh, give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. I know people who have incredible minds, can run circles around the pagan any day, but they do it with such arrogance that it's a total turnoff. In my early uh, years, before I went to seminary, um, one of my specialties was stumping Jehovah's Witnesses, and I'd read papers, I'd read a lot of their literature and their Bibles, and I'd just use their Bible to, to show them uh, how they were wrong, but the way I did it just embarrassed them. They could tell that I really didn't have a, a heart and a love and a desire to win them to Christ, though I would convince, convince myself that I could, but that's just not right. Paul says, though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have not love, I am nothing. It's useless. You've won the argument, so what? They still hate Jesus, right? <laughs> it's useless. So let me end with five things that Peter says need to accompany apologetics. First of all, don't push yourself on unbelievers. Verse 15 says, be ready with a defense to everyone who asks you. 
Okay, now when you see how powerful this apologetic is, it, it, it is kind of fun. And you're almost wanting to go out there and pick fights with people. And Peter says, ah, <laughs> I recommend against that, Peter says. Um, don't be pushy in the workplace. You can defend yourself. You don't need to be, you know, apologetic. You can be, in, in the bad sense of the term, you can be confident. You don't need to be a pushover. And your life, obviously, needs to demonstrate the savor of the Lord Jesus Christ. But don't be picking fights because uh, people are not one into the kingdom by being nasty. The second thing that Peter admonishes is that we do so with meekness or humility. If we lack pride, there's no need to be defensive. And uh, if we are confident in God, we're going to be humble before God. Nothing ruins apologetics quicker than a prideful attitude. Jesus said the meek shall inherit the earth. And so he says we need to do it with meekness. Verse 15. Third, fear God. Peter says we should engage in apologetics with meekness and fear. Now, it could be fear in different directions. It, it could be, you know, fear that we unwittingly begin to take on humanistic independent thinking ourselves but i think primarily it's fear of god because if you lack if you have fear of god you're not going to have fear of man and what is it that gets us into trouble so frequently with compromise it's the fear of man wanting to please man and so we adjust our things and try to say things that won't be offensive and he says no if you fear god then you're not going to fall into the trap of say wanting to appear academically respectable hugh ross's apologetic i think is pandering to the fear of man so fearing god is a prerequisite to being effective in apologetics <clears throat> the fourth thing that should be present is a clean conscience verse 16 says having a clean conscience that when they defame you as evildoers those who revile your good conduct in christ may be ashamed you know why you need to have a clear conscience it's because when unbelievers cannot win the argument on its own merits frequently it's human nature to turn to smear campaigns and personal attack and if there is something that they can dig up on you you're going to very quickly begin turning from defending christ to defending your own honor desperately right so he says have a clear conscience and if you've got a clear conscience before god doesn't matter how much slander throws your way you're not even going to be going down following those red herrings you're going to continue to be focused on christ's honor and pursuing that so i think this is a, an area where many people have a, a weakness in their apologetics that something needs to be shored up and then finally we need to accompany our apologetic with what verse 16 calls good conduct if you're an indispensable employee then your good conduct is going to sell you much more than your words will um, if you're a good employer, you're following the good of verses 13, 16, and 17. I think will be far more powerful than your words. Now, they may still hate you, but they're going to have a much harder time convincing other people what you're saying is wrong. Okay? Now, this whole lesson, you know, may have been a little bit of a challenge for you because, again, the temptation is to think, since I've added some academic stuff in there, to think, if I'm not an academic, I'd be a good apologist. But let me assure you, if you follow points 2, 3, and 4, you can be a good apologist. And all that points 2, 3, and 4 are is keep your eyes open for the providential opportunities that God is laying in, in your lap of demonstrating the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ before other people, uh, to your spouse, to your children, to your neighbors everywhere. Roman numeral 3, use biblical methods. Don't compromise the Word of God. Don't be ashamed of the Word of God. Roman numeral 4, 
defend it in a godly manner. And when you do, I think God will be glorified. They, that's the chief thing that we need to worry about is, am I glorifying God in the way in which I'm presenting the truth to unbelievers? And whether, we're, whether they become believers or don't become believers, uh, if God is glorified, uh, you, have, you have done everything that you need to do. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for calling every one of us, men, women, and children, to be defenders of the faith. I pray that when push comes to shove in our family life, we would not defend what we want in our ways and to our glory, but that we would respond in a way that shows that we are looking to you and defending your honor and your glory. Father, may our lives reflect the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and help us to be effective and presuppositional apologetics. We thank you that you are greater than those who are in the world. You are greater and that you indwell us and that we not, need not fear what men may say to us, that uh, uh, as we submit ourselves to you, you can take our words and you can make them effective in the life of people. Help us, Father, to have our words filled with your word. And Father, may you be glorified in our speech. In Jesus' name.